Now, I don't know about you, but I love Christmas carols, and I, I enjoy Christmas season, and I will listen to uh, the stations that play Christmas music during my commute, no matter how long or short it is during Christmas time. Um, now, to be clear, I love Christmas carols after Thanksgiving, so before that, I would rather not hear them, but as soon as the turkey's in my stomach, then I will listen to Christmas carols 24-7 until uh, Christmas. Now, one you hear a lot on the radio is it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And, and most of that song is about things that I relate to, and I, I've seen these things at Christmas. These are things I understand. Uh, but there's one line in it that strikes me as kind of odd. So it's in, I guess you call it the, the second verse or something like that. There, there's this line, there'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. Those things seem like Christmas things. I mean, maybe not in 2020, but normally there's parties, normally marshmallows, caroling. These things go with Christmas. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. What? I, I, th- there's not scary ghost stories at my Christmas parties. Maybe I was raised wrong, but th- that's... But I, I, I don't know where, those, where that thing comes from. Now, now tales of the glories of... I, I, I'm building to a point, people here in the sanctuary. I'm well aware of where I'm going with, with this message. This is called irony, where I talk in a way that I don't know something, and then I arrive there. Uh, those of you online, they're telling me the point I'm about to come to, so I'm glad they're tracking with me, but... Uh, so Tales of Glorious Christmas is long, long ago. Yes, we share stories, but Scary Ghost Stories does sound odd. It is most likely a reference to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, a very well-known story. Um, but if you actually think about it, even though there's many nice, friendly kid versions, it's actually a really scary story. It is a scary ghost story about a soul that is bound for destruction. As a brief reminder to you, it's about a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who's very wealthy. He hoards his wealth. He doesn't care for Christmas or care for others. And he's visited in the story. This is a fictional story, but in the story, he's visited by three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, who shows him his past, Christmas present, shows him how everybody is celebrating Christmas at this time, and then shows him his Christmas future, a very lonely death that awaits him. But after that goes, Scrooge awakes, and it's Christmas Day, and he realizes that he has a choice. He can either continue in his old ways that will lead to that lonely death on some Christmas future, or he can choose to embrace the Christmas spirit of loving others. It's a very powerful story, and I'm sure most, if not all of us, have at least seen some version of of this, and we probably all have the one that's our favorite, whether it's Mickey Mouse or Muppets or your, your preference is black and white or, or some of a multiple TV shows done a version of it. Uh, personally, I really love reading Dickens' original one. It's not a very long story, and he has a lot of interesting points in there. I enjoy that, but I love all the adaptations as well. The point he seems to be getting across is that Christmas isn't just something that happens, it's just a day of the year, really. But for the holiday to happen, for the spirit of it to happen, people must choose to live out its truths. Dickens is suggesting that Christmas is a time for action. There's a decision to be made whether you're going to choose to celebrate and live out Christmas or not. And while I don't know exactly what Dickens' relationship was to the Lord, he's he's right that Christmas is a time for action. 
when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that God came to earth, that he became, well, he became fully human, was born as a human, and lived among us. God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a powerful truth that should impact our lives. But the question is, does it? And so, my friends, this Christmas, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to live for yourself or to live for Christ. And this is the choice that Jesus is going to put before us in the passage we're in today in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to understand this choice, I'm going to briefly remind us of what we've talked about as we've studied this sermon, this message of Jesus that he is saying to uh, his followers around him about what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And what Jesus says is my followers have to have a particular, or they will have a particular character. There'll be something about them on the inside that's different. They'll have a life of exceeding righteousness and goodness. How they live will be different, better than those around them. He talks about what this looks like as we study through the sermon. He talks about what this looks like in their relationship to God's law. They'll see what God's law says, and they won't be content to do the letter of it, but they'll understand what the spirit, the point behind it is, and they'll live that out. He talks about this is in how we grow, that we will give, we'll pray, we'll fast in a way to grow closer to our Lord and to honor him, not build ourselves up. He says that God's followers will know where their treasure is, so they won't live in anxiety, but they will trust in God. And those who follow him will not judge and condemn others, but they will depend on God's answered prayers. In short, as verse 12 says, whatever they wish that others would do to them, they do to others. That's the decision they make. The sermon has many beautiful moments, many memorable lines, but if we just remember it for what stands out, we're kind of missing the point. It's, it's a sermon. As Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Sermon on the Mount is not something to be commended and praised. It is to be carried out. If we just listen to it and think, oh, that was some wonderful points, some really good illustrations, that was really captivating, but we don't make a decision, a choice to live it out, then we've missed it. We are now at the climax, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is demanding a response from his audience. There's no point in them listening to him and not doing anything. He's presenting them with a choice, and the same choice is before us. Let's listen to what Christ has to say about it. If you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to Matthew 7. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 23 today. Once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in the Bible you have or up on the screen. So I'll be reading Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. This is how Jesus begins to wrap up the sermon. He tells them, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this convicting and somewhat scary passage, I pray you will give us the wisdom to see the choice that is in front of us. May you work in our hearts and minds to choose that narrow way. May your work in us produce good fruit. God, we pray that we would obey you because you know us. God, help us to see, though, if we do not know you, if we've chosen the broad way, if our fruit is bad, may we see that and come to you. I pray, Lord, that you will be the focus of our time today. May you increase, may everything else decrease, that we may see you clearly. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus hits the application of the sermon, and he presents it in very clear terms. He says, we have a choice. You who listen to me, you have heard the words of the sermon, you have a choice. A choice between pursuing a narrow gate, a narrow way, or a wide or broad way or gate. Again, verses 13 and 14 says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide or broad. The way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Like a good preacher, Jesus at the end of his sermon is putting us on the spot. He's saying you must make a decision. He presents us with two roads, narrow and broad, and he's going to continue this for the rest of the sermon, and we'll talk about two other parts. He says fruit. You either have good fruit or bad fruit. He talks about uh, people, whether they know him. You either know him or you do not, and then the next time we're in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk about that there's two different types of foundations that we can have. He's setting up this contrast. You're either one of these things or you are the other, and one of them leads to life. The other leads to destruction. And we don't have to try to figure out, well, what does he mean by this narrow gate or wide, broad way? This is the conclusion to the sermon. He means you either do the things he's talked about in this message or you do not. You are either with Jesus, you're going through this narrow gate, you are doing what this sermon has taught you, or you are against him and you do not. Scholar Scott McKnight said, those who hear Jesus's message regarding his kingdom must follow him to obtain eternal life, or they must disown him and experience God's condemnation. There is no middle way. There's not multiple choices here. This is one or the other. You're either with Jesus or you are not. That's why he says in verse 13, he says, enter 
Make a decisive, immediate action to go through this gate right now because you either do it or you do not. This gate, though, is narrow. It's difficult. The way is hard. It's small. It's constricted. That pursuing what the sermon says will be difficult because it requires us to do, in many ways, the opposite of our human nature. It requires us to practice self-denial, to not think about ourselves first. You remember last week we wrapped up looking at a very famous verse, verse 12, the golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. But if we're going to practice that, that means you're not thinking about yourself. It means you think, what would I want? And then you don't seek after that. You make the very counterintuitive decision to say, no, how can I show that to someone else? It means we're restraining our desires, and that is hard and difficult. Pastor J.C. Ryle wrote that repentance, turning away from our sin, having faith in Christ, having a holy life that honors him, those things have never been fashionable. And so the true flock of Christ has always been small. It's small because it's hard and difficult. I know that's not the most appealing message, but, but it's the truth. To most of the world, Christianity will not make sense. The life of a true Christian will not make sense to most of the world. They'll be noticeably different from others. The true Christian, their life will defy easy-to-understand categories. The true Christian won't fit in with those around them. They'll live a life of, that the Sermon on the Mount called for, of, of some radical integrity. Their morality, their own personal sense of what's right and wrong will be much higher than those around them. But at the same time, they will show love, grace, compassion, and concern for others. The world says that doesn't make sense. The world tells you, no, 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 you have to choose one or another. You can either have high standards and not care for people, or you can have no standards and care for people. You can't have those two things together. But Jesus says, that is the narrow gate. That is the narrow way. It's easy to slip off of because we at different points in life, are inclined to go one way or another, to lower our standards to care for others, or to, uh, to raise them up to such an extent that we don't see how we can help someone else. And that's why constant vigilance is needed to pursue this, because it's very easy to slip away from this straight and narrow path. We won't be perfect if someone truly knows God. I'm not saying they'll be perfect in everything they do, but when they see they've strayed, they'll be quick to get back on the path. This imagery of a narrow gate and other places talk about a straight way, it really reminds me of a famous Christian story by uh, John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't have a picture of it, but it talks in that story, the Christian on his journey to the celestial city, heaven, stays on this straight path after going through a narrow gate. I have a picture in my office that illustrates the events in the story, and there is a straight, straight line in the middle of the picture, because that is the way it's supposed to go. But there are so many things off to the sides that distract him. And for a Christian, there are some times that he goes off in a way he shouldn't, and then he has to come back to that path. On the other hand, there is a broad way. There is a wide way. There is an easy way. Or if you're reading in the New Living Translation, there is a highway to hell. It is a road that is well-traveled by others, and many will tell you to go down it. It is the easy way. You're seeking the approval of what other people say. 
they'll be okay with you. They'll approve of what you're doing. You're doing what everyone else does and ignoring what God says. What's important is what you think is right. And if you do what's right by you and you don't tell me I'm wrong, then we can go together. There are many roads that lead up the mountain. People are basically good. Now, the opposite of that is not living a life of needless defiance and everything. If a majority of people believe something, you say, well, God must be opposed to that. that that's going too far. What we're really talking about is following Jesus as the Messiah or not. Going with everyone else does who lives for themselves or following Christ. I thought about, I don't know if this relates to you, but maybe during Christmas, maybe you've been out doing some shopping. Maybe most of you do online now, but maybe you've gone to a store. And often when you go to a store and you're getting ready to check out, you go up to the counter and it often seems that whether it's a grocery store or somewhere else, most people get in one line. Everybody goes to where others are. And sometimes you might notice this other person's standing at their cash register, but everybody's lined up over here. Why, why are they all lined up over there? Well, they see everybody going that way, and they keep going over there. And they may not recognize, no, there's another way to go over here. But it's human nature to follow what everyone else says, to take this broad road that ultimately leads to destruction and separation from God. But Jesus says the gate is narrow, the way is hard, but it's worth it because it leads to life. It leads to eternal life. Let's not brush over what Christ says there, though. He says that this gauge narrow way is hard. Following Jesus is hard. We shouldn't lie about it to other people and say, oh, you follow Christ, it'll be wonderful. Everything will be great all the time. No, no Jesus' words is that it is hard to follow him, but it is the way to eternal life. It's narrow, it's hard, because it is through Christ alone. Jesus says in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His disciples got this when they were sharing the gospel afterwards in Acts 4. They said, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He is now most important. He is the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that's given among men by which we must be saved. The only way to God is exclusive and restrictive. I'm not saying that to try to be harsh. I'm saying that because it's true. There is only one way to God, and it's only through Jesus Christ. You might say, that's not fair. Well, I'm sorry, but life's not, not fair. But on the other side of that, grace is also not fair. Christ deciding to save us, that's not fair. Christ, we sinned against God. We rejected his reign and his rule. We chose to follow our own desires. This is what I want. This is the course I'm going to pursue. God had every right to forsake us, abandon us, destroy us then and there. But what's not fair is that instead he put that on his son and gave us grace, provided a way, allowed us there to even be a narrow gate to know him. He didn't have to do that, but he did. That's not fair. We experience glorious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We have this narrow gate. We are able to go through it. He brings us through it by his grace. So my friends, rather here online, ask yourself, what road are you traveling? What gate have you gone through? Have you committed yourself to the Christian life? Have you committed yourself to Jesus? 
He has traveled this hard road before us. He will be with us every step of the way. He will enable us to arrive at our destination. And so if you are following Christ and the Christian life ever feels overwhelming, just remember what the destination is. It's eternal life. That's what's at the end of that road. But this choice we make, it doesn't only affect our eternity, it also impacts us right now here on earth because our choice will have results. The choice we make will have results in our life. Listen to verses 15 through 20 again. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." This isn't another isolated section. Jesus is building on this. He's saying you either follow me through the narrow gate or you will follow false teachers on that broad way. They will try to keep you from entering that narrow gate. They will try to keep you from continuing in that narrow way. He's saying it matters who we listen to, who we trust. We must be discerning If someone's going to say they're speaking from God, if they're claiming to be a Christian, we have to be discerning and careful and look and see. Jesus' words in 15 are to beware, be on guard, be alert, pay attention for false prophets or teachers because they are ravenous and ferocious wolves. He's acknowledging that a false teacher can be very deceptive, but he also says you're not without hope. Jesus says he will help you to know the difference and know what is on the inside. He says you will recognize, you will know, you will identify them by their fruit, by the results of what they say. Fruit helps us determine a false teacher. Jesus adds, after all, grapes don't come from a thorn bush and figs don't come from a thistle or a shrub. Someone's teaching their beliefs and how they live should go together. What someone teaches and what people do with that teaching should match. And if they don't, it will be revealed if we have the eyes to see it. A good, a healthy tree will bear good fruit, but a bad, a corrupt, a diseased tree will bear bad fruit. Jesus says it multiple times. He's a little repetitive, but he's trying to make sure that we get the point. It cannot be the opposite. Either the tree is good and there's good results, or the tree is bad and there are bad results. Everyone, not just a teacher, but each and every one of us, our lives, what we do will produce results that people can see. And they'll either be good and lasting and honoring God, or they'll be bad and selfish and self-seeking. False prophets will speak what people want to hear. They'll speak against God and against his word. Other authors in scripture understood this danger. This is a very common theme in scripture. In Romans 16, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine, the truth you have been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They serve their own appetites. 
by their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive, they mislead the hearts of the naive and innocent. Saying their teaching serves their own appetites. What they say benefits themselves. If somebody teaches something that makes themselves look good, that may be a sign that they are a false teacher. But Scripture tells us even more how to determine this. This is an amazing passage from Deuteronomy about how to know if someone should be listened to or trusted or not. Deuteronomy 13, way back in the Old Testament, God said, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, he says something's going to happen and then it does, well, we should believe him. But if he then says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them, well, then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. True prophets, true true teachers, true instructors of God's word must speak truth and their lives must honor God through honoring his word. So the way that we can know looking is to study God's word, to know it for ourselves. Now, when he says, you know, fruits, we'd already talked about judging. We can't assign final value. Oh, that person's obviously going to hell. Oh, that person's obviously going to heaven. We can't do that, but we can make decisions based on the results we see, the results of someone's teaching, the results of their life. That's why Jesus uses this fruit illustration. Good teachers will have good results. Bad teachers will have bad results. So if we're looking at someone teaching, we can ask, do they minimize the Bible? Do they, do they tear down God's word or not lift it up to the respect it should have? Do they not talk about Jesus very much? Do they talk about other things? Do they leave some of the truth out? Do they make salvation more than it is? Do they say you not only have to know Jesus, but you have to do these other things in order to get to heaven? Do they make salvation less than what it is? You have to believe Jesus, but it doesn't have to make a difference in your life. Are they someone who seeks to cause division? These are the signs of someone to avoid. And then very practically, if someone teaches something, does what they say lead people to love God more and to live for him more? If it doesn't, then it should raise red flags for us. Now, these things we're talking about, someone's character, their life, the results their teaching has, that's not something we can see right away very often. We need time to see it. And just because something's popular doesn't make it right. Jesus will say in the Gospel of Luke, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Universal praise is not a sign of God's approval. That's why personally I'm I'm very wary of of new popular Christian ideas or or things. I'm, I'm a little wary at first because I want to see the results and be cautious. So what should we do? How should we live? Well, we should test, try, examine everything. The Apostle John said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, these things we're saying about prophets, about teachers, those who are sharing God's word with us, these same instructions Jesus gives are true for each one of us. Our fruit the results of our life shows 
what kind of tree, what kind of person that we are. Our lives, our behavior reveals something about us. They reveal whether or not we have new life in Christ, whether we've been regenerated, reborn, whether or not we know God. This is a point we often miss when we talk about the gospel. We can say, well, saving faith in Christ is you, is you pray a prayer. You believe in Jesus. That's how you're saved. And there's a wonderful element of truth to that. But what Christ says is, if that has happened, there will be results in our life. And if there's not, then that faith is not genuine. A spiritual rebirth is necessary to live for God. We cannot live for God without Him working in us. Jesus' half-brother James says, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. They're two different things. James says, well, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. The things I do, the fruit of my life, demonstrates the faith that I have in Christ. Our character reveals our faith. We can pretend for a while, for a long time, years even perhaps, but we ultimately cannot hide what is on the inside. Matthew 12 tells us the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. This is very serious. Look again in our text at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, if it is not producing a life that honors God, it is cut down. It is thrown into the fire. This isn't the first time this is even in Matthew. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew 3, John the Baptist says the exact same thing Jesus does. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It tells us one thing, false teachers will be destroyed because they are on that broad road. No one can evade God's justice forever. Jesus reminds us that we will see fruit. We will know if someone is living for God. We will recognize them by their fruits. But having said all this, it's easy to read a passage like that and come away with, okay, so I need to be very careful in who I listen to or read, and we can spend our life hunting for false teachers. And there's, there's a role for that. We should be careful. But I would tell each of us we should be more careful that these verses about a good and bad tree are not describing us. We should have the humility to check our own lives, our own beliefs, to check our own character with God's word and make sure that our life is consistent with what God's word says, not with what we may think it says, but what it actually says about him. Jesus is putting up a very stark contrast here. He's saying either your life reflects this sermon that I've preached and people can see that, or it does not, and you do not. You will produce in your life one type of fruit or the other. And and look again at those words of verse 19. He tells us every tree that does not bear good fruit, if it was possible, it's not But if it was possible to live a completely neutral life where you did nothing good or bad your whole life, even if that was possible, Jesus says, that's not good enough. He says every tree that's not bearing good fruit, that's not producing a life that honors him, will be cut down. Jesus does not give us other options. So if we look at our life, and our life is not reflecting what God says in his word, We should ask ourselves, what kind of tree 
am I? Am I a good tree or am I the diseased tree that he talks about? Because if I'm a good tree, I will be producing good fruit. I'll be producing that good fruit because I have the right root, the right basis. Because our choice between the narrow and broad and good and bad fruit, it really comes down to obeying and knowing Jesus. Obeying and knowing Jesus. This is what he talked about in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do, do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here is where we hit those scary ghost stories we talked about earlier. This passage, these three verses, are one of, if not the scariest set of verses in the entire Bible. It says, our choice we're making between that broad and narrow way to live out the sermon or not has an eternal impact. A confession, what we say with our mouth, does not equal a changed heart. Scholar Danny Aiken puts it, a transformed and obedient life reveals true faith. That our life has been transformed, we've been reborn, that we have new life, we've been born again, that should reveal true faith, that we live out God's word, not what we say. Saving faith is an obedient relationship with Jesus. He is our Lord, our master, our boss. What he says, what he tells us to do is what we do. And we must recognize Jesus as our Lord and master to be saved. The issue is not, do I know Jesus? Have I done the right things? No, he says here at the end, I never knew you. The question is, does Jesus know me? Because if he knows me, it will produce fruit. It will produce the results of obedience. It will be evidence that we know him. In this passage, Christ says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father. Now, don't get me wrong. Our confession, we we should claim Jesus as Lord. We should worship him as God. That is very important, but it's one thing to say something and another to mean it. Neither our gifts or our accomplishments bring us to God. Again, James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. True followers of Jesus live for him. Period. That's really Jesus's point. I could say that and walk out, but that probably wouldn't be helpful for us. But that's what he's saying. True followers of me live for me. End of story. It is possible to believe that the Bible is true, to, in your head, think, yes, I believe this is true. Jesus did these things, but then not do what it says. That is not saving faith. You can come here to this room every week. You can log in online every week. But if it does not make a difference in your personal life, then your religion, your faith is useless. That's what Christ is saying here. It does not have the final result that he calls for. Charles Spurgeon said, Our king receives not into his kingdom those whose religion is in words and ceremonies. You can say the right things, do the right things, participate in everything the church is. But the king receives those whose lives display 
the obedience of true discipleship. They follow Christ. Their heart, their lives reflect what Christ has done for them. As Jesus says, on that day, on the judgment day, he will rescue the faithful, judge those who oppress and misuse his name. Even if they did great things, even if they prophesied or taught in his name, even if they cast and drove out demons in his name, even if they did mighty works, miracles and wonders and said they were doing it for Jesus, it is possible to do all of that and yet not know the Lord. A mighty work, somebody doing something great for God is not proof that that person knows God. God alone knows the heart and he will reveal it at the end. And so what this means, though, is that God can still work through someone even if they don't know him or even if they, they fall from their position. It doesn't mean that if someone was saved or grew in faith under a fallen leader that they have a lesser Christianity. It doesn't mean that at all. God can still work there. But what it does mean is that we can't look at someone doing supposedly great things for God and know, oh, yes, that person must know God. It's their character, how they live out Christ when no one's looking that reflects that. Notice what Jesus says in verse 22. This is a scary, scary word. He says, on that day, many will say to me, many. Not, not a few, not a couple hundred. He's, his word is many will say that. That is sad. That is terrible. Many will be told by Jesus to depart from me, get away, you practicers of lawlessness, you evil doers. Even though they looked the part, even though they acted the part, they were never truly converted. They never knew Christ, so they could not do what he commanded. They may have done these things that look like they honored God, but if they didn't know God, then what they were doing served their own end, and that would be sin. This is God's judgment on those who reject him, those who even who say they serve him, but they don't actually know him, those who serve their own interest. God's judgment is that they are pushed away from him. And this is the point here. You could hear a message like this and you could say, so pastor, are you saying that somebody has to do the right things to earn a relationship with God? No, no, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is if we have a relationship with God, it will produce something in our lives. We will choose to live for him. And if we don't, something somewhere is horribly wrong. And the most likely culprit is that our heart has not been changed. God's judgment on this type of sin is reflected throughout Scripture. In the book of Psalms, he says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Strong words here. God says you hate all evildoers. That's, that's a really strong word, Pastor John. But if God is true, if he is all things good and wonderful, we would want him to, to oppose what is evil. And yes, Jesus was love, but, but the passage we're reading today is Jesus talking. Jesus, the, the one who everybody says is love, tells people who think they know him to depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus was opposed to rebellious sin. He was opposed to rejection of God. He saves his harshest criticism for those who think they're in a right relationship with God, who those who claim to know him, but their lives don't reflect it. They are the ones Jesus criticizes the most. These teachings of Jesus in this passage, it's combined with what we talked about earlier about the narrow gate in the Gospel of Luke. 
In that book, Jesus says this, strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will say, well, we ate, we drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. We we were as close to you as we could. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This is Jesus talking. This is what he says to someone whose heart doesn't know him. Our text today tells us that many who thought they were Christians will one day discover that they were not. That should scare us because it's true. And let me give you a warning about this message. This is not a message for your neighbor. This isn't a message for your friend. This isn't a message for your spouse. This is for you. And let me also tell you, I know I talk about false teachers. I'm not interested in discussing with you today who is or who is not a false teacher. I'm not interested in having that discussion today. We, we can have that discussion at some time. But my concern, Christ's concern, is those who are listening to him. My concern is your hearts. Can I tell you one of my greatest fears? One of my greatest fears is someone in this room hearing this from Jesus. That, that breaks my heart to think about that. It does for a couple of reasons. One, I'm, I'm the pastor here, so I, I'm responsible and held accountable for your souls. And for someone to, to have not been there, that's, that's something that will be on me that I'll have to deal with. But more than that, more than myself, selfishly, you're you're my church family, and I care about you very, very deeply. And this scares me. I don't want to see this happen to anyone, but Jesus' words are many will hear this. But most of all, God is worth our all. He's worth everything we have. He's worth so much more than you just saying you believe in him, doing things because they look good, they look like they honor God. He is worth much more than that. He deserves to be known, to be praised by you. So brothers and sisters in Christ, please search your hearts. Does your life reflect Christ? Does your heart seek him? And if you think the answer is no, then there is still time to change. Like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, your Christmas future has not arrived yet, but it will. It will arrive someday. Jesus tells a story about this. He talks about um, 10 virgins or or 10 young women who were going to be a part of a wedding. They were supposed to have enough oil for their candles, and five of them did and were able to go into the wedding, but five of them didn't. And they try to come in later, and this is what happens in Matthew 25. Afterward, the other virgins came also. They said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the master of the wedding said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus adds, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the choice that is in front of us of the narrow way or the broad way. It's being in the wedding in eternity with Christ or not. And this is a choice to make now, not later, but now. 
where we know Jesus and follow what he has said in his word. Because you are either living out the words of this sermon or you are an enemy of God. Those are the only two options Jesus gives us. He doesn't provide a third option of people who kind of believe, but, but not really, and that you never really tell. Jesus doesn't give us that option. We don't know someone's heart. I can't tell you whether someone you know or care about is or is not Christian. I, I don't know that, but what I can tell you is Christ says his followers live for him. And if they don't, it shows they are not his follower. That may be extreme, but that's, that's God's view. You either know him or you are his enemy. And God's enemies are abandoned by him. They suffer his wrath for eternity. And when I say this, I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions. If you know me, I don't like preaching messages like this. This is the text we have today. I'm not trying to manipulate you, but I do hope that God's words are able to scare you out of complacency if you've been coasting and knowing you don't have a genuine relationship with him. If you claim to know Jesus, but you are stuck in repeated sin, then you do not have evidence that you know him. You may have said something years ago, but if you are stuck in sin and not living for him, you don't have that evidence. If you are, say you are a Christian, but you regularly, you consistently choose to put aside God's word and do what you want, then you do not have that good fruit that Jesus talked about. You do not have the fruit of a follower of Jesus, and you look like a tree that is about to be destroyed. I don't know. I'm not God. I can't make that judgment, but that is what you look like if you are not living for him. If you do a lot of things for Jesus, you do all these mighty works, but you don't have a relationship with him. You're not spending time in his word and prayer. You're not seeking to know him and grow closer to him in a relationship with him. If you don't do those things, then how do you know he knows you too? That's what's important. Christ says, I never knew you. How do you know that he knows and has a relationship with you? My friends, don't brush this off. Figure it out. Don't say to yourself, well, I do this and I do that for God. That's not the question. The question is, does Jesus know me? And if he does, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If we're going to know him, there has to be a fundamental change in us. The old self has to die. We have to be a new creation in Christ. But if you don't know him, Jesus can give you new life. He can call you to himself. For us, that looks like we're turning away from sin. We're trusting in him alone to save us and that our lives then flow from that choice. Now, there's always a danger with sharing a message like this. I know there's some people whose personality is you're constantly doubting your salvation, constantly thinking you're not good enough. And I, I know there's some people like that. I've had seasons like that. And people need to be reminded who are in that position that Christ promises us peace and a relationship with him. And that's true. But that, that's, that's not what we're talking about today. And I think more often the problem, and probably the more serious problem, would be someone who thinks they know God, and they really don't. So we shouldn't rush to the place, oh, God's at peace with me, God has forgiven me, unless we've taken the time to look at our heart, our life, to really ask, what is our position before God? It's important to know, love, and obey Jesus, to take a special interest in him, to have a relationship with him. 
Here's the truth, my friends. God wants you. He wants you. He doesn't want what you do. He doesn't want what you say. He doesn't want what people think about you. He wants you. He wants your whole heart and life. And he'll take that or he'll take nothing. He doesn't care if you just say, oh, I love God, but you don't give him your heart and life. that's, That's of little value to God. He wants you, all of you, your whole life dedicated to him. That's what it means to come to know him. He doesn't do that because he's selfish, but because he truly wants what's best for you. He wants you to have eternal life. The narrow way that he calls us to of knowing him and following him, living in obedience to him, that's hard, but it is glorious. It is wonderful. And because of Christ, it is the best hope for the future. So we're called to make a choice this Christmas, to know God through Jesus Christ or to reject him. I, I hope and pray that we will search our hearts and figure out, do we know him? Does our lives reflect the teaching of this sermon? That we will live for him according to it. And if we don't, that we'll talk to someone about it, say, I'm not sure if I'm there. We'll have a conversation, check our heart and go with somebody to pray with us, to seek us to know God, and then we'll be able to live out what he has taught us. I pray that we know him, that we live out his words. Uh, To borrow words from Charles Dickens at the very end of A Christmas Carol, the last line, he says, may that truly be said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God blesses everyone.